0: is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 187 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting This Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. We just had a thunderstorm roll through here. We have a few days of much-needed rain to look forward to. Yeah, we just had our
1: last bit of uh, cold weather go through here the other day, and unfortunately Mm -hmm. now I feel feel like summer has awoken here in central Florida, which... It's okay. I'm I'm okay if that means that thunderstorms are also going to roll through here and and bring us rain because it feels like we've been going through a drought for the longest
0: time. But I'm going to miss that cold weather. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have spring and then it gets wintry again and spring and all that. But but um, yeah, on my personal Facebook page, I you know I'll post every week. I've been posting like signs of spring around the garden. All that so I have to do some this week because those um bulbs that I planted in those pots that the skunk dug up and I just put back in randomly after having placed them so carefully by color and type and all that and then I just threw them in the pots and put the potting soil on well they're all coming up now and so it's like okay now I'm excited to see what's in these pots and all that A lot all the daffodils are coming up so so that's exciting so I'll have to put up photos this week of all that hmm. and everything That yeah we have a lot of lot of um, the shade plants they're doing the rhododendrons are blooming camellias azaleas lenten roses things like that are all blooming right now how beautiful Good. it is it, it really is beautiful so um spring is my favorite time of year and then fall but spring is less messy Fall, then I, I know I have two months of leaves, breaking of leaves. <laughs> it's when it's fall. <laughs> so, anyway. Oh well. But with the recent successful landing of NASA's Mars rover, Perseverance, Craig and I thought this would be a good time to pick up our Man in Space series. Um, the Man in Space series first aired on the Walt Disney's television show, Disneyland. And as a lead up, we spoke with Disney historian Todd James Pierce in episode 157 to talk about Disney animator and legend Ward Kimball, one of Walt's nine old men, and the producer, director, and writer of the Disneyland television show Man in Space series. In episode 162, we examined the origins of the series and its first installment, Man in Space. In episode 166, we discussed Man in the Moon, or its later name, Tomorrow the Moon, which is not currently available on Disney+, Plus, but is available on YouTube and the Disney Treasures DVD set Tomorrowland. And in this episode, we are taking you to Mars and Beyond, the title of the third episode that aired in Walt's Man in Space series and is available on Disney+. Plus. So to briefly recap the episodes I just mentioned, 1954, Walt Disney debuted a television series to showcase the still-under-construction Disneyland and its various realms, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. Now the studio already had material uh, and footage for Adventureland, Frontierland, and Fantasyland episodes, but when it came to Tomorrowland, the studio had no existing material to showcase that realm. So one of Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, veteran animator Ward Kimball, was tasked to direct a series of documentary programs about the possibilities and wonders of human space travel. And the result was a series of episodes that aired between 1955 and 1957, partly based on articles in Collier's magazine authored by German scientist Werner von Braun and other rocket scientists meant to detail von Braun's plans for manned spaceflight and sell Americans on space exploration at a time before NASA existed. The first episode, titled Man in Space, followed the history of rocket science and what humans would have to face in space. It ends with a call for the United States government to create a space agency of its own. The second episode, Man in the Moon, focused on humans' fascination with the moon, as well as details of a plan to construct a space station and send humans to the lunar surface. The third episode in the series, Mars and Beyond, aired on December 5th, 1957, a month after the launch of the Soviet Union Sputnik 2, which was the second spacecraft launched into Earth orbit and the first to carry a living creature, a space dog named Laika. And we're not going to bring you down by telling you what happened to Laika. Well, what happened to Laika? Due to, uh, a, um, a malfunction with the air conditioning unit Laika never made it back well
1: let's look at the positive that Leica eventually had one of the greatest animation studios named after him or herself I'm not quite sure the what type of dog it was but uh, Leica's legacy lived on so that's good
0: uh, did they ever do a cartoon about her?
1: No, but it's it's like the, <laughs> the name of the studio with uh, Coraline right. and Paranorman and Kubo and the Two Strings and Missing Link. So lots of good movies. Mm-hmm. Just
0: not not a short yet about the dog itself, but maybe one day. Maybe one day, maybe. Yeah. Mars and Beyond had been highly anticipated by the television audience, but had been delayed because Ward Kimball and his team had been temporarily reassigned to work on a never-produced episode for the series on the launching of the Vanguard satellite. And we'll talk about the never-aired episodes of the Man in Space series in a future installment. Compared to the first two programs, Mars and Beyond is more lighthearted, and it relies much more on animation. It cost $450,000 in 1955 dollars to produce precisely because of the need for so much new animation and the inability to use any live-action stock footage. Luckily, all the scenes with Werner von Braun had been previously filmed because he was now busy working with the government to launch the first United States space satellite. Now, the show begins with one of the most iconic scenes of Walt Disney in this television series, in which he is introduced by a tall mechanical man named Garko. And the episode starts off with some actual history on humankind's fascination and beliefs about planets, most specifically Mars. Then there are animated scenes depicting life on Mars as imagined by authors like H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote John Carter of Mars. This section includes the popular theories of Mars during these writers' era, including that the inhabitants of Mars built a network of canals that irrigated large sections of the planet, including its vast forests. This section of the episode also imagines the type of life that could be found on Mars, from giant plants that travel across the land looking for sustenance, to silicon-based crystallized structures. This is more like Fantasia, the the pink elephant scene of Dumbo, and even German expressionism than the typical films the studio was making at the time.
1: A lot of the animation in this section, it's... It's wild to see how drastically it changes with each portion. Like this is, it's honestly a masterclass in terms of animation, just because of how it bounces around. And I know we, when we covered the other episodes with this series, that we we showed a lot of praise to the animation. But this is also another example of how the animators continued to build upon themselves and uh at no means during any point of this is this animation that is like it's it doesn't scream out to you disney this is Mm -hmm. this is the animators getting to put their own uh, artistic sense and personal touches into the designs that they create with it it's still very familiar to what was done before but but just different enough but i i have a feeling that a lot of people too who who are so used to your classic disney animation the the fab five mickey mouse cartoons uh, a lot of this animation is probably off-putting if you're not very used to it it almost has a a rougher sense that uh we you would expect more from something like as an example like a rocky and bullwinkle
0: show like it almost has that feel to it mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it was a little, probably more cheaply to animate Mm -hmm. in this style. But also it was more cutting edge. Because Walt was always wanting his animators to try new styles and to be modern. And and so that's why the shorts allowed them to do that. And, you know, projects like this, television, they did it quite a bit in all the various, uh, you know, Disney television series yeah. that ran
1: well in a big staple of it is a lot of the in, in the opening animated scenes a lot of it is these intricate characters done on these plain flat backgrounds that are are very colorful uh, you know it's it'll it'll pop going from purples to to deep reds maroons to then then potentially really bright green red characters on a flat back background that really just makes it jump out like it's it is very successful in that way but because of how plain and simple the background is not having not having that depth of animation in there it really it draws your eye to the actual characters that are right on screen in front of you and you know that's that's something that you watch snow white and the seven dwarfs you're taking in every single little bit of that animation same goes with sleeping beauty a lot of the classics pinocchio your your eyes are drawn to that foreground character all the way to the background artistry but in 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 a cartoon style like this you don't have anything in the background to really look at so you have to take in all of the details in that foreground character and it's it's always a lot and you know it's not crazy effects going in with some of the the animation with it but just enough to say like this is extremely detailed this took this took an artist a lot of time and effort to put into it and for for a television series essentially (laughs) so it's just it's it's wildly wildly impressive
0: yeah, also very vibrant in the colors that they chose, the color palettes. Yeah, um, a yeah. thousand percent agree. And uh, uh, what happened to Garko? We'll get to Garko. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> we get to Garko. We, we'll, I'll okay. tell you the whole history I'm, of Garko. I'm jumping the gun on it. I'm sorry. Yeah, you are, you are. But but mystery does surround Garko. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> Then, um, well, oh, in a story meeting about the project, Kimball said, We have quite a few new fellows coming in under the training program, and we sent out a questionnaire asking them to draw up their conceptions of what a Martian would look like. From that, it gave us the idea that we might have a section on what life like me might be like on Mars. Disney version. Well, those were saying, you know, it, it, they really broke away from the Disney version, as, as you are observing, Craig. Mm-hmm. Then there is the section that parodies the pulp science fiction magazines of the 1950s with bug-eyed alien creatures causing an attractive young Earth woman to be in peril. This secretary of a rocket scientist is captured by a flying saucer and taken to Mars to meet the alien overlord, but is able to defeat the aliens with a ray gun and return safely to Earth and her secretarial duties. I love how she is drawn. She's sitting there... In her, almost not quite floozy-like, but she's there with her legs crossed, typing with one finger, martini in the other hand, mm-hmm. looking just totally, uh, I'm really not into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And then she returns and, and strikes the same pose after all this yeah. <laughs> action on Mars. And I, I just thought it was hilarious and brilliant. And, and, um, I, it inspired me to love
1: martinis. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it did it? Yeah, but so, be very careful with how you hold them,
0: especially if an alien comes along. Yeah, and, and, and especially. And, I, and then I love that as as all this action is going on, it cuts to the rocket scientist deep in thought with oh, all yeah. his formulas, and then it goes back to her, and then it goes back to him, totally oblivious. I mean, it's really, it definitely, it's Ward Kimball at you know his best oh yeah and it's and
1: uh, it's ward kimball at his best but this is where like this sequence in particular is when i brought up rocky and bullwinkle like this is where i get a lot of that that style and influence from um you know i'm not saying that the people who went on to to make it or inspired but it would it would make a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. in that way there's just there's there's so many little common similarities but yeah i do I, I feel like I'm one of the human equivalents of the the scientist just sitting back in his chair, smoking his pipe, and that's like, it, it's me to a T. It's If I had I a think, mirror, that's what I'd see.
0: Thinking deep mathematical thoughts of the universe while unraveling the them. Robot coming is, to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, just
1: while the <laughs> robot is
0: behind me waiting to uh, strangle me out. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, The episode then shifts to its more factual section with speculation about how we would explore other planets and survive on Mars. It shows astronauts journeying to Mars in ships designed by Dr. Ernst Stuhlinger, who had been recommended to the studio by Werner von Braun. Stuhlinger was a nuclear scientist who wrote a paper in 1953 titled The Possibilities of Electric Spaceship Propulsion. Stullinger and von Braun had developed the idea shown in the episode of umbrella-shaped spaceships measuring 500 feet across and assembled in space that were equipped with small landing craft for the journey to Mars. For the general discussion about Mars, Ward Kimball contacted the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, and in a letter dated March 13, 1956, to the observatory director, Albert Wilson, Kimball asked if his team could visit Flagstaff and gather live footage of the facilities and staff. Kimball also wanted one of the Lowell astronomers to travel to the Walt Disney Studio to narrate part of the show. I know when they showed the observatory, it looks smaller than I imagined. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, I I, I get that. So, um, it's a, Do you find this section to be kind of eerie? Eerie in what yeah. way? I don't, it's something about again with the animation with it. It's just I I don't think it's off putting. I don't know the right word to describe it. It's just it. Because even like I want to say, kind of disturbing at points with it. It's just it it really makes me think as I'm watching it, and I'm guessing that that's part of the the point of all of it. It just has it has a realness to it. It's mm-hmm. it, it's got an element that's that's just striking, and you know, it, it's you're watching it, and it is truly animating, but it, animated, but it feels it feels like it's more than that. And it's to me this section's a little bit hard to watch.
0: Really? Huh. Yeah. Now I found it fascinating. Absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, I I find the I find the context of it fascinating, but it must just be the animation style. Something about it. It just it it just has a sense to it that you know the the first section being a lot more a a lot more cartoonish a lot more uh, off the wall that it's a lot easier to digest than the realism probably like when when watching fantasia you know some sequences are just easier to watch than others it's a lot easier to watch alligators and hippos dancing than
0: night on the bald mountain
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: but well that's true and and all the as we talked about in the earlier episodes in this series all of the um all of these Man of Space series were broken up into those three sec- sections where one was sort of the introduction, laying out, introducing the story and the concepts and giving the history of what they were going to talk about. Then there was the wild speculation in the middle. And then there was, which is always the fun section. And then there was the realistic. They would get serious in the yeah. third section. Yeah, yeah
1: they they I, they do successfully get really realistic with it but i don't maybe it's just a little too real right now maybe it's that as i'm watching this in this current time knowing that you know we we do have our, our rover on mars again providing better footage and uh, it, you know who else knows what's going to come of this mission but something about it it just it it Mars feels realer than ever before. So maybe mm-hmm. having having such a, a strong section of this show explaining more of the details about it, it just provides an extra weight to it. I don't know, mm. but
0: it's just the reaction that I got while watching it hmm. no. Well, it's interesting. Well, I'll have to rewatch it and see now. Well, on March fifteenth, Observatory Director Wilson responded and suggested astronomer Earl Carl, who went by E.C. Slifer, who would serve as the narrator. Slifer was widely recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on Mars at the time. Within two weeks, Kimball sent Wilson a script and storyboard for the episode with an explanation that the script was kept simple, quote, so that the average viewer won't switch stations to Liberace and his piano, unquote. My mother watched Liberace.
1: I, I don't know that much about Liberace, but uh, 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 what I know about Liberace is mostly from uh, from movies and Austin Powers.
0: Oh, okay. No, I, I did catch him every once in a while. My mother was watching him. Filming for the episode was done at the Lowell Observatory in April 1956. The studio paid $1,350 in rental fees and costs to cover the observatory staff's salaries. In May, Slipher flew out to the Walt Disney Studio for filming, and Kimball recalled, Dr. Slipher did very well before the cameras. We put horn-rimmed glasses on him, and everybody who had seen the footage comments that he looks like a typical astronomer. I just thought that was hilarious that those glasses were fake. <laughs> when I came across this quote, so. <laughs> uh, I,
1: when can we ever trust anything anymore? I like know. big glasses. I,
0: that's just, it's the oldest trick in the book, I feel like. And, and then when, when, and I think the reason Dr. Slifer was, did well before the cameras, because I, you know, looked him up. He had been governor and, and served in the Senate in Nevada. So he was, oh. before becoming an astronomer, so he was, um, I, I would guess he was very very comfortable in front of cameras. That's uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. it's
1: uh, it, it's very hard to have a, a natural on camera element. So, yeah, that's I I I'm glad you did that little bit of extra research to to find out because that, that paints an an extra picture to it all.
0: Yeah. Now, Slipher was paid a $500 honorarium for his appearance in the 8-minute segment, which also included his brother and fellow astronomer Vesto Slipher and astronomer Henry Lee uh, Geiklis, both of whom also worked at Lowell Observatory. During the preparation for the show, Von Braun, Willie Lay, and Kimball went to the home of Rex Bohannon. I couldn't find anything on Rex Bohannon. I'm, I'm just assuming he was a friend or a co-worker of Ward Kimball. And according to Kimball, that was the closest that Mars had been in years. It was a beautiful night in La Crescenta up in the hills, and we had this six-inch refractor telescope. We had Mars, and there were the polar caps, and there were the little markings across the surface. Von Braun was fascinated. He had never seen Mars this close before. He swore he could see canals. He just didn't say a word. And he was a pretty talkative guy. He was really impressed. We had a showing in the studio one afternoon in the theater. We put up notices. And Walt was there. He sat in the back row. I sat next to him. And when that stuff started to come on about life on other planets, the whole theater was laughing. Walt sat there with his mouth wide open during the sandstorm part where a silicon creature is feeding on sand and other plants are protecting their faces with their leaves. He turned to me and he says, "How do you guys think up all that stuff <laughs> and this <laughs> and this was coming from Walt Disney. I couldn't believe it. It was a great compliment. I thought that reading between the lines, we would never have had it in there had he seen it on the storyboards. He couldn't quite conceive it, I'm sure. We didn't know how it was going to look until we saw it ourselves. I don't know. I always thought, I don't know. I think he maybe was um, underestimating Walt there. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I can understand that, that statement a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Kimball was also influenced by a June 8, 1957 radio newscast report about Air Force space medicine researchers who had determined that conditions seemingly fatal for most life forms on Earth could be the habitation of creatures entire, entirely unknown to man on a planet like Mars. In his closing narration of the episode, Paul Frees states, When an Earthman finally walks upon the sands of Mars, what will confront him in this mysterious new world? Will he find remains of a long-dead civilization? Or will the more conservative opinions of present-day science be borne out with the discovery of a cold and barren planet where only a low form of vegetable life struggles to survive? These questions will be answered by our space pioneers in the future. In solving the enigma of the red planet Mars, man may find a key that opens the first small door to the universe. And that's what we're doing right now with our rovers. We are. We are planet.
1: absolutely doing that. But, you know, that's the like the episodes in the past. I, I feel like there's just, there's solid ideas throughout all of this, uh, you know, for for being so early on in the mid 50s uh, a lot of those elements that we see then pop up in in future science fiction movies like 2001 a space odyssey you know they're they're rooted in in elements like this which of course it's all rooted in true elements of science as the scientists were we're talking about in the episode it just it it, it all comes from a place and mm-hmm yeah it's just it's it's not my it's not my favorite of the series i'll just say that Uh, and i think i've made that i've made that pretty clear there's uh there's a visceralness to this episode that at some point is just off-putting even some of the animation to me it like i'm shocked how it almost appears to be done like digitally later on like a lot of uh a lot of the the stuff around the 90s where Disney was just dabbling into computers and computer animation a lot of that looks similar to stuff in this episode and part of me like is weirded out by that because it just it, there's such a correlation even though there's so many years apart from it and clearly two different animation styles but uh, is the episode successful at what it it says throughout I'd I, say it it brings up some really good points throughout the mm-hmm. entire thing and and paints a really interesting picture and is clearly entertaining so uh there's there's a lot to get from it
0: i really admired how they speculated when we had zero information on mars except what we could see through telescopes so i i thought they were very clever
1: that's, that's a great point and uh it's it's also refreshing too because even if they were wrong about everything it, it takes a lot to go out and speculate especially in that time they could have stuck to solely the mars equals martians equals bad and go completely with science fiction but you know it's again it's rooted parts of the episode rooted in deep science with it so they want to they they want to use research want to use a little bit of what they study and throw it in there to to add some some true backing to it and uh i i feel like that's why we can still watch it to this day and get something from it rather than just say oh there's, was you know oh boy were they off they were they mm-hmm. were out of left field on that one there's there's still substance to get from this episode
0: oh absolutely we'll talk a little about that um shortly um now paul freeze also performed the voice of garko which was recorded first, and then Garco was manipulated to match the dialogue. And we'll have more on Garko in a few moments. And <laughs> and what is what is that mystery? I'm I need more Garco teasing. Yeah. <laughs> Mars and Beyond was later edited down to eighteen minutes and released theatrically in nineteen seventy nine as Cosmic Capers. And Doctor Ludwig von Drake, also voiced by Paul Frees, replaced all the original narration. The animated sequence of the brave secretary fending off the Martians was so popular that it has been reused multiple times, including in an episode of the syndicated television series Mouse Factory, also produced by Ward Kimball. The episode, titled Interplanetary Travel, aired March 29, 1972, and was hosted by comedian Jonathan Winters, who played a variety of roles, including an alien and Professor Eric Antiquity, the alleged inventor of rocket propulsion and the world's oldest astronaut. I loved Mouse Factory. I wish that was something that would get re-aired on Disney Plus someday. It's just not Disney enough. So if we can inject
1: some more intellectual property characters into it, I think we can get it on there one day. Oh, there's
0: a lot in there. More. (laughs) More. More. This animated sequence and the introduction with Garko and Walt are included with the film clips shown at the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater at Disney's Hollywood Studio Images of Walt and Garco have also been used at Space Mountain at Walt Disney World and Inventions at Disneyland. Probably the best thing that was ever at Inventions at Disneyland. There are a series of color publicity stills of Walt goofing around with Garco off camera and even playfully sparring with Garco. Mars and Beyond was released theatrically as a forty-nine-minute featurette on December twenty-sixth, nineteen fifty-seven, and distributed to schools. Carl Nader, who is in charge of the Walt Disney Educational Films Division, attempted to stop it from being released to schools due to the extended segment devoted to the Darwinian version of the history of evolution of life on Earth. According to Ward Kimball, the head of the studio educational film department, who had later sent out films to the public schools, was upset that we showed man evolving up from a single cell, developing in the middle of this primordial soup. We did it fast with quick cuts so that all of a sudden man stands before you. When he saw the storyboards, he said we were promoting evolution and asked, why do you have to have that in there? I explained that we had to establish why man could only exist in this thin band of temperature range in order to set up what was to follow. The studio held press screenings for Mars and Beyond before its network debut, and it earned positive reviews. The review in Time magazine said it was consistently interesting and informative, with enough light touches to make it amusing, and enough solid detail to hold the imagination." Okay, Craig. Here here's Garco for you. I'm
1: I'm ready for my Garco <clears> facts. <throat> and I hope I don't have any extra questions about Garco, but if I do, I have full confidence that you will be able to fill me in on yeah. all the uh Garco information.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Garco sounds like some medicine that would have been, you know, promoted in the 50s when they had all of those yeah, everything had a weird name back then.
1: It's like a, a mix of medicine and also like, well, what do you do if your car breaks down? Call Garco.
0: <laughs> You're thinking of Amco. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Garco, the mechanical man who introduced the episode with Walt Disney, was already a Hollywood celebrity when he appeared on Mars and Beyond. Garco was one of the first attempts at an all-purpose functional humanoid robot and had most of his success in entertainment. Garko was built in nineteen fifty three by Harvey Chapman, an engineer for the Garrett Supply Company of Los Angeles, which explains the Garrett nameplate on the front of Garco, also explains his name, Garco for Garrett Company in 3 anyway so chapman built garco in 3 months in his home garage out of discarded airplane parts garco started out as a publicity stunt but chapman when he was interviewed by popular science magazine for its december 1953 issue felt that his creation should be taken more seriously Chapman believed that creations like Garko could be utilized to do a lot of highly dangerous but necessary jobs, like mixing the ingredients for experimental explosives, handle deadly bacteria, weld, handle radioactive material, salvage items from underwater, and perhaps even pilot the first rocket to the moon. A two-way transmitter enabled Garko to make pertinent remarks. Garko's movements were made by Chapman using a five-jointed electro-me- electromechanical control arm with a hand grip at the end, and this was ten years before we saw Imagineer Wethel Rogers on television demonstrating a somewhat similar control harness used for programming the audio animatronic figures for the Carousel of Progress. Or they, but later they said they really never used that harness for programming yeah. the figures. Garko weighed 235 pounds and stood 5 feet 8 inches tall, but could telescope his legs and grow 6 inches taller. 200 screws held together his front and back aluminum plates and had to be frequently removed so Chapman could perform maintenance on Garko's mechanism. It was estimated that Garko's parts cost approximately $1,000. He was insured for $10,000, and Chapman said it would cost $40,000 in labor and parts to reproduce Garko. So, so you're getting a whole new respect for Garco here.
1: Oh, I wait. Are we not playing a drinking game with Garco right now? Because <laughs> I've been I've been taking a shot every time we say Garco,
0: so I have no idea what's going on right now. Well, you're going to be under the table in just a few moments. <laughs> <laughs> so. Garco was well. Um, I'm sorry. In June 1954, Garco became Hollywood's first mechanical press agent for the recently released science fiction film Gog that featured a deadly robot going out of control at the climax of the film. Have you seen that film, Gog? I don't think I have, no. No. Sounds like something that would be on, like, you know, Creature Features or, or Elvira or something. You know, one of those kinds of shows. Yeah. I'll keep a, plays late night on Saturdays. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I'll keep
1: an eye out on TCM usually around October. That's when they start playing really bad movies really late at
0: night. Okay. <laughs> so, according to a... Press release: Garco, who represents a million dollars in electronic research, plans a personal appearance tour in of the country in be, on behalf of the movie. If that didn't launch it to critical success, I don't know what else would have. Uh, um, this podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, everybody's going to look for Gog <laughs> and see, and probably the makers of Gog are going to wonder what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Garko was also a music critic for the May ninth, 1954 episode of a local late-night Los Angeles CBS television show, Jukebox Jury, hosted by Peter Potter, with a panel of celebrity judges who would critique the latest musical releases. He would go on to appear in other television shows like Jack Bailey's Queen for a Day and Science Fiction Theater that was a syndicated show that ran from 1955 to 1957. Garko would also make appearances at charity events, science fairs, and at factory demonstrations. He'd umpire a baseball game and even cut the ribbon at the Arizona State Fair in 1957. So by now, you're probably asking yourself, whatever happened to Garko? Well, he seems to have disappeared from a publicity circuit in the 1960s, perhaps replaced by more modern counterparts like Robbie the Robot or Maybe that robot from Lost in Space. Um, the Los Angeles Times on August 6, 1961, reported that Garco shows signs of wear. Will retire. A mechanical man who can play chess, mix drinks, hammer nails, and carry out other assignments with human encouragement will retire from active duty soon. His mechanism was apparently breaking down. The Garrett Corporation stated, We are hoping to find a permanent home for him in the Smithsonian Institute or some other museum where he can be preserved for prosperity, said Mickey Parr, company spokesman. As of this recording, no one, including Chapman's family, knows what happened to Garko. I think Chapman's grandson speculated that the Walt Disney Studio might have him, but um, according to Dave Smith, uh, they said no. We do not have Garco when, when he was questioned about that.
1: Yeah, I, I know. I found one other thing too because I didn't realize that before. You know, we we
0: started doing this
1: episode, and you sent me over the script with it. I didn't realize that um, the the company that made. Garko eventually turned into Honeywell, which is a big name that we all know today. I mean, mm-hmm. Honeywell Electronics, uh, especially with like home home tech and such, it's it's all out there. And I know I, I read one post where uh, that at one point in time, someone said that they thought that they saw Garco at Honeywell's site in, in California, but that was just a rumor that wasn't actually proven as fact so uh the the mystery is still very very much out there but uh it's 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 an ongoing mystery and i mean as i kept going with the research on it too i mean honeywell is very proud of garko is it i mean which is is nice too so it gives me hope that maybe one day someone bored in that company will be like let's find garko if disney's
0: not gonna try to find garko (laughs) Let's find Garko. Yeah, yeah. And see if they can get him working again. I don't know. I hope he's not, you know, in a, in a crate like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Dark stored somewhere, <laughs> forgotten to time. Yeah.
1: And uh, <laughs> part of what I should say, too, the rumor that I mentioned that people said they – rumors that they were seeing – that Garko was seen at Honeywell, uh, The the article that I was reading about it and – I mean that it was written in the last fifteen years. So they're saying sometime after the two thousands that people have claimed to see Garko in person. I don't mm. know if I buy that. That would have been one of those secrets that I'm like they would have seen they would have said something at this point if Garko was just hiding back behind. But then again, uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's a thing where no one cares this much about a random robot besides
0: us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe Garco's the night security guard at some Honeywell facility, and that's why like nobody sees him. Oh, that would be fantastic! It's like Honeywell <laughs> does
1: not trust their own, uh, <laughs> their own security <laughs> systems, and and uh, and everything else they produce from the. You know, thermostats and such—they need Garco taking care of all of it instead. <laughs> That's right. That's
0: right. Yeah, I have a Honeywell thermostat in my home.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much Honeywell Aerospace deals with uh, deals with regular Honeywell <clears throat> products, but I, I have a I have a feeling that they dabble a little bit side to
0: side in things they make. You know, people I mean, need they, heat in space too. I was just going to say that they need thermostats <laughs> and spacecraft and all that. Right? Yeah. In 1957, Walt Disney said, What curious kinds of life may inhabit Mars and other planets? Do weird trees and flowers grow there? These are haunting thoughts, for man wants to know the unknown. But until trips to Mars become feasible, we must be content to explore the mysterious worlds that exist right here on Earth. On July ninth, 1958, three years after Man in Space first aired, President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act and established NASA as America's civilian space agency. Werner von Braun was named director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. Was President Eisenhower already a futuristic thinker or did man in space convert him to a belief in space exploration? No one knows. But as William I. Hitchcock observed in The Age of Eisenhower, President Eisenhower embraced the idea that the country needed a federal agency to lead non-military research on space as a matter of human curiosity rather than warfare. The description laid out in Mars and Beyond and how a trip to Mars would work and the technology necessary to make that trip ended up being very similar to the technology that allowed the real Curiosity Mars rover to land on Mars on August 6, 2012. And as of this recording, it is still actively exploring the planet and sending back data and photos to Earth. The Man in Space series became the centerpiece for what Walt Disney envisioned for the Tomorrowland section of Disneyland, and it launched a decades-long love for space travel from the company. The TWA Moonliner at the center of the park was derived from Man in Space and designed with the assistance of Werner von Braun. And though Walt Disney passed away before the moon landing, the live television broadcast of the Apollo 11 mission was screened at Tomorrowland for guests. And many space-related attractions have opened and closed at Disney theme parks throughout many years since the series first aired. And then, of course, there is the film John Carter of Mars. Which, which is movie.
1: a movie uh, <laughs> which is yeah, a movie <laughs> apologize for the, the long awkward pause there it's like uh do i want to really go down this rabbit hole but you know what i, I feel like most people are in agreement that uh, J- uh john carter of mars is uh, not good. a mess <laughs> not good. um it, it, pete werner loves it and uh on the off chance that he listens to this one day, yeah, I love it too. But for everyone else out there,
0: I think this movie is bad. <laughs> but but the Walt Disney Company does have a history of space-related films as well. Yeah, it's true.
1: and, and It's, they it's also, a bit checkered. <laughs> they also have a, a history with bad movies. And uh, John Carter of Mars is definitely up there with it. But, you know, as long as they don't go down that road again... I guess I can forgive
0: them the one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so overall, now that we've talked about the three episodes that aired on, in the man in space series, what are you, what are your thoughts in general, Craig on the series overall? The series overall, like I, I, I said, I really
1: praise it for the animation style throughout the entire thing, even when it doesn't necessarily uh, fit my aesthetics. I love that they took extremely bold chances with it. I love how they involved the scientists to get a sense of realism and really ground it in reality to make sure that they weren't just sharing information. That they were trying to get, they were trying to get things right. And uh, uh, but above all, I think it's just uh, it's a series that I wish they could have continued doing longer. Than where they stopped it with, and I, I, you know, I know, I know, there's more, but I, I feel like it's it's an, a it's a series that could have kept going on for years and years and years to come with different subjects, and uh, I, I think it truly was a success. And I, you know, I do have my favorite moments and I do have my least favorite moments in it but overall it it's actually one of my most played uh, Walt Disney Treasures DVDs that I do have because I think I think the high parts it it hits in, in a good way. I think I think it accomplishes a lot. And the the lessers of those parts, you know, it's still good. It's just not necessarily my style. So I'm I'm a huge fan. If you haven't watched these it, it, I am literally yelling at you right now. Go Go watch them. It is so mm-hmm. so entertaining. It is worth the time.
0: Yeah, and I think it's Disney creating infotainment at its best. A great, I mean, great way to put it. Yeah, and and maybe and that might be why I you know I love the original Epcot so much, Epcot Center, because again, there that that was infotainment that they just can do such a good job on when they really put their mind to it and are really dedicated to it and, and that's what they did with the man in space series
1: yeah i completely completely agree with it so it's a uh, it, it's an overall abundantly successful and I, I I wish I wish they could continue doing a series like this now in our current present. I know there's uh, there's a lot of different outlets to do that, National Geographic and outside of Disney Discovery Channel. There's a lot of there's a lot of ways to make documentaries on it, but it's something when you add Disney into the element. Maybe it's the Disney brand that you just learn to trust a little bit more. But I I would love to see that now that now that we have we have actual shuttles landing on mars and there's so much activity in our our space program right now let's 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 continue uh focusing on it because it's still the future it's still where we're going but i i would love to see disney's take on it a little
0: bit more yeah i agree i agree and i and i think this helps fulfill i we i think humanity within us we have a need to explore, to discover new things, and I think that this um, the man of space series helped feed that desire that I think we all inherently have, and and I, I wish and I wish Disney would continue to feed that desire, and I think that's why the space program is so important, is. W- humanity has a need to grow beyond the boundaries of our planet and and see what's out there just as they did in the early days uh, when they you know explored the oceans and and explored the planet you know in the in the ships you know now we do it in spaceships instead of ocean going vessels so um so i hope um Yeah, I would love to see them continue that as well. And so and we hope Yeah, if you haven't watched this series, we hope you you go back, you go and watch it, look it up. And if you have watched it and and it's been a while after listening to our Man in Space series, hope you'll go back and watch it again and see if your experience is enhanced now by what we've shared with you. In our next installment of our look at the Man in Space series, we'll examine some of the planned but never aired episodes of the Man in Space series. But now we're going to travel from Mars and beyond back to this week in Disney history. Well, this week in Disney history, Craig, there was a whole lot. This was the week that the world shut down. Okay. Due to the pandemic,
1: wait, what? What happened? One year ago, <laughs> wait, was I around for this? Did this happen?
0: I don't know. It's the longest year in everybody's lives.
1: I, I literally, I just woke up like twenty four hours ago. <laughs> I
0: okay, okay, news to me. Well, that's how I was. I went into the hospital for much longer than expected. If listeners remember, and and COVID hit. Yeah. during that time and everything shut down and by the time i came out of my stupor and all that because it was a it was a rough road um everything had started shutting down and i thought what happened so it was it was fascinating i'll be it's- honest
1: i don't think i really thought about that a lot until you're saying it now i remember a couple of the first conversations that we had after I, you know, I had a couple conversations with you when your throat was just starting to recover, and you were able to talk a little bit more. And I, I do remember there was a sense of you not understanding quite what was happening in the world, but I don't think I really put it together until now. So
0: that must have been so scary for you back then. It was I, I was unbelievable. Yeah, I I, I just saw, how could this be happening? You know, I mean, I you know there've been a lot of science fiction series you know about things like that happening
1: i mean but i never
0: thought i'd be living through it it's kind of like how the walking
1: dead started he gets you know he's in a hospital wakes up and there's a zombie apocalypse i mean you're not that bad but you were very similar that you came out and no one can just be wandering around in the streets Everyone's i know it pulled up bizarre. in their houses oh man
0: yeah, so th- this week you're going to hear a lot about parks, Disney theme parks closing just to the end of the month and all that and all that, but um anyway, but we not I'm not going to get into that <laughs> in this week <laughs> in Disney history. But we're going to start with March 14th. Which film at Walt Disney World's Tomorrowland Circle Vision 360 Theater closed on March 14th, 1975? Mm, and part of me is oh,
1: actually, oh, um, I, it's not America the Beautiful.
0: Yeah, this didn't so, play long. I'm so not quite sure. I'm
1: I, I. My initial thought was America the Beautiful, probably because it's like the only one that jumps out at me in that time period. But I know it's it's not that. But
0: I'm not mm. sure. It's Magic Carpet Round the World. No. Oh. And it had been running since 1974. The film took guests on a tour of landmarks spread across the four corners of the globe. Okay, March 15th. The first United States president to be exhibited in a Disney theme park was born on March 15th, 1767. What is his name?
1: Oh, um, 1767?
0: That's when he was born. Mm-hmm. And you said, how did you phrase it? He was... The first United States president to be exhibited in a Disney theme park was born on March 15th, 1767. What is his name? If it helps, he was the seventh United States president. Seventh? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, (laughs) Monroe, Adams,
0: Jackson. That's right. It's Andrew Jackson. (laughs) Very good. Listen, I I know up to Lincoln for sure, and then that's when the song kind
1: of gets wavy in my (laughs) head.
0: Oh, is that Schoolhouse Rock or something?
1: I don't remember, but I Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler, Polk, and Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, and Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, and Hayes. That's where I get right right
0: there. Okay, so all my questions now have to be after President Hayes. <laughs> Rutherford, after Rutherford Hayes. Yeah. <laughs> Our most okay. important president, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Andrew Jackson. He's born in Waxos. I don't know how he said, say it, area near the border between North and South Carolina. A mannequin of old hickory was part of the Davy Crockett exhibit in Frontierland and later moved to Tomorrow, to Tom Sawyer Island. This was a decade before Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Of course, you may now see President Jackson and all of the United States Chief Executives in Walt Disney World's The Hall of Presidents reopens. Yeah. I'm wondering if, just in case, do you think they're, they're getting a Kamala Harris figure ready?
1: I, you know. To, to
0: just put in right away?
1: I feel like Walt Disney Imagineering <laughs> should be prepared for every single scenario.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh It would know, be interesting if they do they have the uh, vice presidents ready to go just in case something dreadful happens. I honestly, you know, <laughs> I would
1: never I would never wish that on anyone, but we clearly you know, opinions were made about the last time around with with <laughs> them preparing for one president and having to switch for a different one. So I'm just saying
0: flat out now. They need to prepare for everything. <laughs> I've always, I read somewhere, when I was doing the research for Hall of Presidents, they, st- they work on the two front runners, and then they sort of, then they finish up.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, on I, I, I get that. However, yeah. we,
0: I think we're far
1: enough past it to say that that last animatronic was awful. Uh, it was.
0: I haven't been impressed with the last couple. I didn't care for President Obama's.
1: I'll actually agree with that too i felt like it was um i and i hope i'm not being disrespectful in saying it but i feel like it it was a little too cartoonish for my taste uh it wasn't Mm -hmm. it wasn't realistic enough and Mm -hmm. because we've seen we've seen that they're able to nail that look but maybe it's just uh maybe it's just the what they're going through right now not wanting to be too too accurate to the current president and One day they'll redo sculpts and and stuff down the line. But I I understand what you're saying with it, for sure.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I'm also wondering if maybe it's because of all the little mechanisms they put in now to make the facial expressions Mm. more realistic. Mm, Maybe that does change, um, like if, if a president has a really slender face or something. That wasn't the case with President Trump. But maybe it does change the detail and the shape because they are putting so much more into... The structure of the yeah. face. That's very true. I, I never know. thought about it. But yeah. I, I think you have a you have a point there. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, March sixteenth. Walt Disney's black and white live action comedy, The Absent Minded Professor, starring Fred McMurray and Nancy Olson, was released on March sixteenth, nineteen sixty one. Which popular Disneyland performer was Fred McMurray's stunt double in the film?
1: Oh. Um, hmm stunt double uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna take a bold guess on this one just because he comes up
0: way too often on the show i'm gonna say wally Boke. absolutely it is wally Bogue. he's mcmurray stunt double particularly in the airborne scenes the film is produced in black and white to facilitate a number of unique special effects the film's midfield fight song is written by richard m and robert b sherman and it was their first song for a disney feature a colorized version of the absent-minded professor was released in 1986. I do not care for colorized versions of films.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't either. There's never been one that I've been uh, impressed with at all. But I love absent-minded professor. I just watched I do too. It The last six months, and it's, it's,
0: it's a joy to watch. March 17th. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Goodness. The Emmy Award. <laughs> <laughs> the Emmy Award for Best Action or Adventure Series was awarded to the Walt Disney Studio on March 17, 1956. For which series did Walt Disney receive this award? Um, It's not
1: Jameson, so that would be my second guess.
0: Um, I'm going to let you give this one to me. The Davy Crockett series on the Disneyland television show. It beat out Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I used to watch wow. that when I was little. Dragnet, Gunsmoke, and The Lineup. Walt Disney himself also won an Emmy Award for Best Producer of a Film Series for Disneyland. Best Single Program of the Year is awarded to Producers Showcase for the episode Peter Pan, which I'm sure was, an, like we talked about last week, Was probably another promotional Episode for the oh, film yeah, and a, yeah. a long commercial, and that beat out six other nominees, including the Disneyland episode "Davy Crockett and the River Pirates." Wow, now, yeah, I
1: always, I, I always forget about Davy Crockett sometimes in terms of the
0: timeline. It's so important, but just slips from slips from my mind. I was recently watching some interviews with Fess Parker um, that were conducted shortly before he passed and it was interesting to hear him talk about how davy crockett really impacted his life and career negatively as well as positively because basically he couldn't get another role i mean his next big role was daniel boone which was basically (laughs) davy crockett yeah walking sideways yeah and so um Yeah, but I mean, other studios, because Walt was done with Davy Crockett. Other studios said, hey, we'll do more Davy Crockett if you don't want it. And they wanted Fess Parker, but Walt said, no, no more Davy Crockett. Because I guess they had the rights or something, I don't know. So yeah, so it was Daniel Boone. And then Mm. he was sort of done. There was just nothing else. So he went into real estate and owned a wine uh, and then bought a vineyard, and all that. Which he was very successful at. And and you know what his you know what the catchphrase for the vineyard was, that that he was king of the wine frontier. Oh, that's perfect.
1: I Is still, that great? I I have two bottles. I they're already <laughs> uh, consumed, but I have two empty bottles of uh, of the Fest Parker Red Blend that I'm gonna it, make.
0: It's a good wine.
1: Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. They stopped selling it at the wine store that we typically go to here in Florida. But yeah, I used to I used to buy it all the time because it was fairly priced and in, in really really decent wine. And uh, it's the one label I have. Their Frontier Red. It is it is beautiful. I'm going to make it into a lamp, and it's it's going to be incredible. But
0: uh, I, I wish I would start selling it
1: again. I really enjoyed
0: it and. <laughs> i have a bottle from the mcmurray's fred mcmurray's vineyard that i'm just wanting i'm saving it for special occasions it's a it's a really good wine as well
1: yeah the mcmurray Mm -hmm. pinot noir is actually my Mm -hmm. go-to wine i know it's a not the not the most expensive it's only about 16 to 20 dollars at more most liquor stores but uh it's 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 a solid 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 line and real tasty and it gives you that disney connection Mm -hmm. but absolutely um, the and the last thing i'll just share since we're sharing so much i remember it's a weird fun fact for me but my craig's day in disney history i remember that we were on the way to orlando the day that uh that buddy epson died oh gosh from davy crockett davy crockett that's right yeah, it's. I remember we were in the lobby of the hotel getting ready to leave our flight, and that's when we picked up the newspaper because that's how we still got our news back in <laughs> in two thousand three. And uh, it was Buddy Ebsen passed away, and I was like, "The guy from Beverly Hillbillies? You mean the movie?" And that was that was a lot going through my head. I yeah. I, I made a mistake on that, but uh, <laughs> that's that's my fun fact for this episode.
0: Okay <laughs> Well, March 18th, which Disney animator appeared as a contestant on Groucho Marx's television quiz show, You Bet Your Life, on March 18th, 1954?
1: I'm, I'm going to go off on the rails here and assume that this is one of your theme dancers, just because it seems like an out of nowhere question to ask. So I'm going to say Ward Kimball. It
0: is Ward Kimball. You're right. It was one of my theme dancers. <laughs> anyway. Okay, March 19th. Walt Disney Productions released its first live action comedy on March 19th, 1959. What is the title of the film? I don't know. The Shaggy Dog.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh.
0: The film centers around Wilby Daniels, played by Tommy Kirk, a teenage boy who is transformed into a sheepdog when he accidentally happens across a magical but cursed Borgia ring. Fred McMurray, in his first of what will be seven Disney films, plays Wilby's father, Wilson Daniels, also appearing are familiar Disney teens, Annette Funicello, Tim Considine, and Kevin Corcoran. I've met all of them. Veteran Disney voice actor Paul Freese has a rare on-screen appearance in the film as well. The film also features a sheepdog from California named Sam, who just stole the film. Yeah, uh,
1: (laughs) you know, it's another one that I watched this past summer. I feel like I was able to dip into a lot of the the older live-action movies during quarantine on Disney+. And uh, Shaggy Dog, not my absolute favorite uh i love i love a lot of the uh, texas switches with the dogs to uh you know add add in that that el- extra element and surprise but uh it's it's a it's a wild crazy movie much better than the the remake they did of the shaggy dog <laughs> oh <laughs> ten, yes 10 15 years ago now but mm-hmm. not long enough we need to put more time between that <laughs> so
0: oh yeah, it'll it be would, they'll make a new one on disney plus you just know it
1: no it's uh i i feel like is uh, tim allen very controversial person these days uh i feel like he ruined the shaggy dog enough that they will never make that
0: mistake <laughs> uh, i never saw it uh, i i'm not a big fan of the remakes as you all know from listening to this show it's terrible um, but for some reason
1: <laughs> for some reason robert downey jr does appear in it too
0: so I mean, as iron man
1: yeah, <laughs> <I laughs> wish <laughs> that, that would have been a movie <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, March 20th what did the Walt Disney Company officially take ownership of on March 20th 2019?
1: 2019 uh, 2019 too late for Pixar at this point so uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say this was when Fox finalized
0: that's right, 21st Century Fox. The deal, which closed at 12.02 a.m. Eastern Time, reshaped the media landscape and makes Disney an even greater entertainment behemoth. The acquisition adds a stacked library with many films like Young Frankenstein, which is on Hulu, and Home Alone and the Sound of Music on, on Disney+, Plus, and popular animated television shows such as Family Guy, Bob's Burgers, and Futurama. Never got into Bob's Burgers or Futurama, but Family Guy is one of my guilty pleasures. Oh, I
1: I think you would actually love Futurama, but you have to go back to the beginning and really dig into the first three seasons, and then you know they took some time off and and retold. But uh, Futurama is is an excellent show, and knowing your love of sci-fi, I think you would really appreciate it. Bob's Bob's Burgers. I love, but I also understand that it's it's not for everyone. Uh, but I, I I appreciate it. But uh, I don't care for the animation style exactly, and that's what that's what I feel like is a big stop point for a lot of people. the The humor is goofy the music in it is spectacular the voice acting for the most part is uh, is also like just right there it's it's perfect but the animation style is a lot harder to uh, to to get involved in I know it's it's just a little bit more rough but uh, I, I I really I, I really do love it too but um, all, all, all good all good shows but for you specifically Futurama, Give it a chance at
0: some point. I will. In time. I, think, I, I will. think You'll
1: really love it. And
0: I caught episodes here and there, and you're right. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> so, but um, oh, I'll I'll take a yeah. I'll start from the beginning. I assume yeah. it's somewhere. Yeah, it's on Hulu some streaming it's, service. Oh, okay. It's
1: all on Hulu. There's there is one episode of that show that makes Kylie and I both ball like harder than any Disney movie. It is. One of the saddest, saddest episodes I have is that ever when the, seen. In does the robot episode. break down? Does he disappear like Garko? It, it does not. I'm not going to spoil <laughs> it for you. I'll okay. say that it involves it involves a pet, but that's oh. all I'm going to say with it. And I mean, it's if you're an animal lover, it is like. It's, it's heartbreaking. I can say the name of the pet in the show and she will, she will instantly start breaking down. You can't say that. It's that, it's that important, but, uh, Fox super important to disney now i i look forward to the day that edelweiss replaces uh when you wish upon a Star's the theme song and all that good stuff i don't think that's ever happening i i please understand how much i was joking by that i'm not being anywhere near serious with it
0: (laughs) please don't get mad at me (laughs) anyway well you did a great job this week in disney history thank you (laughs) So, Craig, how was your birthday? What did you do to celebrate? Absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> no, it,
1: we really we did we did nothing. Um, my wonderful wife, she promised she would make me a cake on my birthday and i uh, got home from work late and then ran out to the grocery store and bought me a couple desserts and said <laughs> that's gonna do it for tonight and i'll make it tomorrow and then tomorrow came and still didn't happen and uh you know long story short eventually we we got around to saturday and no sunday sorry in Maybe Saturday. I don't, know. it doesn't matter. But she finally made my cake, and all that matters is, uh, I got, you know, I got a lot of, uh, really, really sweet messages from a lot of people out there. A lot of people who, uh, listen to this show, watch our other shows, and, uh, it's honestly, that's, that's the nicest gift I could, I could get. It's, it's, it's always nice getting a random present here and there for stuff, but, uh, I, I love I love just getting to interact with people and getting to have that back and forth. And I hate when too many people reach out because then it makes it very, very difficult to respond to everyone. So I I really I do appreciate if you reached out and wished me a happy birthday. I promise you that I did see it. I know I might not have responded to all of it, but I did see it. And it, it means the world to me. So well, thank I hope you. you appreciated the video that I posted on your Facebook page. I remember it now, but I also don't remember it. But I do. It was remember it's it. your
0: favorite Minnie Mouse video.
1: Oh, you gave me uh don't go breaking my heart. Yeah, I yeah. Do. I <laughs> it's I mean to be fair, it's been almost a week now since my birthday, so it's uh, it's <laughs> it's been a while. But no, I I do I I I, I just I love seeing all the random stuff. I like people who are also mean to me on my birthday too. Like I, well, I you get that, that. every day. <laughs> I, I know I get it every day, but I like when they're like, "Oh, it's your birthday. I'm not going to be nice to you." That to me is like that's a bold move, and I can appreciate that. <laughs> don't don't give me a day off from being mean to me. That's uh, that's it, it. It makes me laugh, and I think a lot of people know that. So I take it all in stride. Yeah,
0: and speaking of taking it in stride, did you? take the WandaVision finale in stride? Were you happy with it? Disappointed? Did it meet your expectations?
1: Oh, well, I will say it met my expectations, as in I didn't really have any. It didn't blow me away. I wasn't one of those people who said I expect this character to show up or I'm going to be mad. I expect... This oh, Mephisto, Mephisto's
0: name yeah. kept getting thrown around.
1: Um, Mephisto, yeah. uh, Doctor Strange to connect it to the multiverse of madness. All of that I, you know, what I, I paid attention to what the rumors and speculation were with it. Uh, I wasn't expecting anything out of it. It, it ended, it ended exactly like I thought it should be. Um, it it reached its natural conclusion and then it ended and that's really fresh for a TV show. And granted, yes, the, the end credit scenes did then extend it to say, okay, it's not completely over, but if we take it for what it is and end it right before the credits started rolling, it told a succinct story, which was confusing at times, exciting at times. Uh, but overall I feel like it was a satisfying story and, Mm -hmm. Then that last end credits scene, like any good Marvel movie or now TV show with it, it just connected it back in and said, Nope, it's not over yet. And
0: I don't think I could I don't think I could ask for any more than that. No, I thought it was good. You know, I'm still trying to figure out if Wanda is a villain or a hero. Because she was sort of both. Uh, that's in, yeah. in this series. And they definitely have a cliffhanger that everybody's assuming is going to be continued on in Doctor Strange um, Multiverse of Madness and all that and we don't really know where White Vision went off to I I assume that that gets resolved in a future film so there's a lot of things that we can look forward to learning more about I I enjoyed it thoroughly
1: I think overall just my opinion since we're throwing it out there I I don't think she's a villain per se but I think it does it shows how the emotions that play on us can, can make us appear like we are villains at times. Uh, it's, you know, there's, no, there's no beating around the bush on it. Grief played a big factor into mm-hmm. it. And it also, there was a twist in one of the episodes that showed you can be given information, but take that information out of context and you can tell a complete different story and you can frame someone to be a villain even when they might not necessarily fall into that realm so I think overall it it really shows perspective with it and it shows that it kind of shows the point of you never know what the person next to you is going through and you might not always be able to resonate with that as well too and it's, it's hard it doesn't make them a bad person it just makes them a different person on a different mm-hmm. path and i don't mean to go like so metaphysical with that but uh it's it definitely it's it's very very complex and it's weird still saying this in 2021 that a uh, a comic book hero show can be complex but it is
0: oh yeah absolutely yeah so i'll look forward to seeing falcon in a winter soldier soon so will see what that has and then, of course, we heard today Disneyland and Disney California Adventure are going to be reopening sometime at the end of April. So that will be very exciting and looking forward to hearing, okay, how is that going to work? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and- what a week. I mean,
1: a, a, a more information than I expected in such a short time because uh, the day that our episode dropped last week for with connecting with Walt, that was when the news came out that – disneyland could open as of april 1st and Mm -hmm. you know they said right away it's not going to open on april 1st no one i think expected it to open april 1st i also didn't expect to know five days later them being ready to make a statement of even the timetable but sure enough today as of when we're recording this sorry to peek behind the curtain here but uh you know we know now that they're they're planning on that late Late April start to opening up, so a very very quick turnover for Disneyland. I don't even want to say that because with uh, Florida, you know, Universal opened up pretty much right at the start. That they kind of could with uh, with with their parks, and then then Disney followed about a month later. So if Disneyland opens, you know, give or take a month after they're they're allowed to be open, it kind of follows suit in that, but. I don't know something about how exciting it is it just it seems like it seems like they're waiting a while but not too long I, I I'm just so mad that I don't have a California ID if if you know any redheaded <laughs> Craig Williamses who are 6 foot 3 and uh, you know approximately 220 pounds uh, please please let me know uh,
0: uh, no reason in particular <laughs> Well, good luck with that. And, um, D23 had announced uh, another virtual event. Walt Disney Imagineering Magical Milestones, Disney California Adventure Park 20th Anniversary Celebration. And, um, I guess this is, um, it sounds like this is just part of a series that they're yeah. launching here. So, which is exciting. So, and it's D23. Times Walt Disney Imagineering, it says, Magical Milestones. And um, so it's for gold members. It's $10. It's free, I should say. And $10 for general members. And you'll get an access to it that starts March 10th, runs through March 26th. And um, so anyways, and, and there is a huge, there's... Couple dozen people that are going to be in is Steve Davison, Tom Fitzgerald. That's the name that people that you might, uh, names you might recognize. Um, Kathy Magnum, um, John Morrow, um, Kevin Rafferty, um, Bob Weiss is going to be there, Claire Weiss, no relation. And, um, anyway, and then a whole bunch of other people too.
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: And I'm, I'm just going to
1: say it here and not that it matters our opinion is meaningless and uh, i believe it you know it has already aired by the time that we release this episode but i love this method that they are 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 doing with this event in particular the the specifically the pricing structure that gold members get it for free and then they are charging the general admission members i feel like Mm -hmm. finally it's Finally, they realized like, oh, well, with some of these events, you know, the gold members and general members were all they were getting the exact same thing. And sometimes gold members, you know, they get one or two exclusive things. But this finally feels like they found a fair way. Like, oh, you don't want to pay $100 for a year for the magazine and everything else. Well, okay, if you want to pick and choose what you want, 10 bucks here and there then yeah. go ahead with it. But for gold members, you get it right in there. I love, 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 love that they finally found a good balance with it. It adds so much extra extra meaning to being a gold member with D23. And it it, it sounds really cool. I mean, I have my my ticket, and I can't wait to report back next week on, on what we think of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I sure will report. Well, who knows? We'll end up doing a show on it. combined with some other uh, uh, virtual events, like from the Walt Disney Family Museum or something. Uh, Who knows? We might even
1: have special guests like Steve Davison, Tom Fitzgerald, Kathy Magnum, uh, Kevin Rafferty. Uh, Don't
0: get my hopes (laughs) up, Craig. (laughs)
1: Uh, We will have none of those names. You've (laughs) got (laughs) to deliver. We will have none of those names, but we will talk thoroughly
0: about them. (laughs) Uh anyway, I'm looking forward to, to this. And and I guess we're gonna get a preview of um Avengers Campus and Web Slinger's A Spider-Man Adventure. Mm-hmm. So they will
1: not reopen right away when Disneyland opens, right. but it's, it it is ready
0: to go, but they mm-hmm. are gonna hold back on it just a little bit. Yep. Well, I used a few references when putting this episode together. Um, book, The Vault of Vault, Outer Space Edition by Jim Corcus. Uh, some articles and websites. Walt Disney Deserves Credit for Our Progress on the Moon and Mars, Not Just Mickey Mouse by Jim Denny. Revisiting Mars and Beyond, Disney's influential animated documentary short about space travel and life on Mars by Raphael Montemayor and Robart Archaeology, Garco, the robots of the 1950s on Adafruit.com. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, as always, you can find
1: me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Teleclaster, and then you can also find me on all of the random shows that I'm on, on the DisUnplugged podcast network, and uh, that's, that's the main way that. To- to contact me and then the last thing i want to throw in i know we didn't mention it on this one but uh I, I just before we we get to you for a second there too i i did speak to our representative with give kids the world Stephen amos about the upcoming dis family reunion that is uh coming up this fall and uh I, there's a lot of extra news to come with this, as Ooh. as we get closer to the event, he shared with me uh, a lot of details about some of the guests and what they'll be presenting. There is one guest that hasn't uh, that hasn't been announced yet that I think people are going to get very very excited about. So all I'm saying is, if you don't have it blocked out on your calendar yet, I would I would start thinking about it more and more. It's it's a couple weeks only before uh before obviously the the 50th anniversary of walt disney world it, it's still going to be hit or miss on whether or not you're going to be able to get into magic kingdom on that day on the actual i got, day.
0: i reserved the park on that day i reserved magic kingdom well, months in, ago
1: and <laughs> you got it not everyone will get into yeah. it some people now will choose to go to ratatouille over in epcot on that day mm-hmm. uh you know the celebration will last months and months and months so unless you're sold on i really need to be at magic kingdom on that day and you don't know if you're going to get in i would honestly consider the dis family reunion there's going to be some
0: cool elements to it so that's it's september and that's september 9th to 10th and then the after hours event at galaxy's edge is september 11th thank you thank you Mm -hmm. and also hey michael where can people find you You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling-ConnectingWithWalt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter, at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon Podcasts. You can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.